The scripture reading this morning is from John chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. Hear the word of the Lord. The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple selling oxen and sheep and dove, and, and dove. And the money changer seated at the tables, and he made a scourge of cord, and drove them all out of the temple, with the sheep and the oxen. And he pulled out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the dove, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciple remembered that it was written, Zeal for his, your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing this thing? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Take heart, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I love you, O Yahweh, my strength. Yahweh is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon Yahweh who is worthy to be praised. And I am delivered from my enemies. Lord, we have so many enemies pointed against us and against our well-being in you, Lord. And we, we know you've taught us from your word. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of this darkness. Lord, we know the need of the moment. The need is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might so that we might do everything that we can fully clothed in the full armor of God. We might do all that we can to stand, to stand firm in the evil day. We love you, Lord. You are our strength. Your nearness is our good, and we have no other good besides you. Lord, the world can strip away everything from us, but if we have you, Lord, we can run upon a troop. We can climb over a wall. You can teach our hands to bend a bow of bronze. You can train our fingertips for war. Lord, you can teach us how to fight in these days with the weapons of righteousness on the right and on the left, wielding the sword of the Spirit, praying in the Spirit at all times. 
Lord, You can do that great work in us. And I pray that You would. Our enemies array themselves all around us, O Lord. I pray like David, though, we would be undaunted in our confidence in You that by Your strength and by Your grace, we can defy all of them in Your name, knowing that You will give the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. And we will reap a harvest if we do not lose heart or give up. So Lord, help us not lose heart and to devote ourselves to prayer at all times. We pray, Lord, that when you come, you will find faith in us. You will find us standing firm in your name and resolved, Lord, to resist the world and the devil and to resist sin to the point of shedding our own blood. To hold fast to your testimony, to conquer through the blood of the Lamb, and to love not our lives even unto death for the glory and for the sake of our King. Father, give us resolve to stand firm in our allegiance to your Son. And Lord Jesus, we pray that we would stand firm in all that you are for us. Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning. Do with it what you will. You know my weaknesses, Lord, and you know the weaknesses of your people. Please overcome those weaknesses now. Refocus our hearts and minds upon you. Lord, let us be here in this moment, not for anything or any other person's sake, but for you and for you alone. Let this be the time where in our hearts we are undistracted and our minds are undivided. We are of a single mind sitting before the throne of our God, listening to his word and hearing how it ought to be applied to our lives. God, give us grace unto that end. Let Christ be exalted among us this morning. Those who are not among us, Lord, we pray that you would encourage them, that you would strengthen their souls in the truth, that you would fill them with your spirit and with knowledge of your word and allow them to stand firm in the week ahead despite the fact that they're not here with us. God, we pray that you would restore them to the fellowship soon and that we would know more greatly the power of our God and our own souls that comes through corporate worship and gathering together as one people in your name to lift up one voice to our King. Lord, it's in one faith, one baptism, one Lord that we call upon you together as your people. We ask you to be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we continue walking through the Gospel of John, we come to John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22. 
And not surprising to any of you, we will make it to verse 17 this morning, and we will come back next week to finish the rest of this section. Um, Today we're really just going to be looking at Jesus cleansing the temple and the degraded state of the worship of the Jewish people at this time. Really focusing in on why the temple needed to be cleansed and the manner in which Christ went about cleansing that temple. Now many account this section in the Gospel of John as the second sign that Jesus does, or at least the second sign that is recorded for us in the Gospel. We've looked at the fact that uh, we've noticed before that the Gospel of John is really structured around at least seven primary signs that are proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, One of the greatest summaries of the Gospel of John that I read is Andreas Kostenberger's book. I believe it's the seven signs of the Messiah. And it's just walking through the Gospel of John in a summary fashion and showing how these signs were intended to communicate and signify the reality that Jesus is the promised Messiah of Yahweh. And he has finally arrived and he's here to do his bidding. He's here to accomplish his work. And so many people believe that the cleansing of the temple is the second of these seven primary signs. And I would say that the cleansing of the temple in and of itself is not the sign. But it is pointing to that which is the sign. Which is Christ's resurrection. Not the cleansing of the temple. See, the the real sign, we're going to get into this next week, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but the real sign here is Christ raising up a fallen temple, a temple that has been destroyed through the ungodliness of God's people, a, a temple that has had the full measure of human depravity poured out upon it and its destructive capabilities, and yet Jesus says, I will raise it up on the third day. An eternal, everlasting temple. That's the glorious sign that Jesus presents to us here in this passage. But right now, today, we're just looking at really setting the stage to consider that sign next week. And you can tell where I'm I'm excited to get to next week. But we need to be be here today. Now, really, this section in John 2 continues the same theme that was started in Jesus turning water into wine. You remember... Um, Jesus turning water into wine, that miracle is identified as something more than just a miracle. It's not just a work of power that Jesus did in order to show his divine power or to show off who he is in his person. That is very true, and that is absolutely what was happening in changing water into wine. He was showing himself off as being God. However, that's not everything that was intended to be communicated through this miracle that Jesus performed. It says in John chapter 2, verse 11, that this miracle is actually a sign. It's something that is signifying something greater than the sign itself. It's pointing to something of greater significance than what is simply being communicated on the surface of the sign. And we noted last week that what Jesus is communicating through this, what he sees at this Jewish wedding where these people run out of wine, Jesus sees a parallel between this Jewish couple running out of wine at their wedding and what is now happening in the spiritual state of Israel. These people have run out of wine. Oh no, it's a tragedy, right? Wine representing the very blessing and grace of God. Part of a, a very important part of a wedding celebration. Well, here there's a parallel 
there's a type and a shadow of the whole spiritual state of the nation of Israel at this time. The Jewish people had run out of wine in their covenant with God. The grace of the old covenant had reached its end. It had come to its completion and its fulfillment. And it was now time for the grace of the new covenant to be brought in by Jesus, the Messiah. And you can see various places throughout the Old Testament where the blessings of the coming Messiah are described by God as the renewing of wine for his people. For example, compare Joel chapter 1 verse 10, which describes God's judgment as the removal of wine with Joel chapter 2 verses 18 and 19, where God promises to restore his people to his grace, and he describes that as renewing their grain and their wine. And if you remember anything about Joel chapter 2, that's also the chapter where Jesus, or where the Spirit talks about God doing that great work by pouring out upon his people his Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and I don't have time to make that connection, but that is the new wine of the new covenant, the Spirit of God. And we'll get into chapter 3 where Jesus makes new wineskins to hold that new wine. Anyway, this sign of changing water into, water into wine was signifying really the, the fallen state, the fallen spiritual state of the people of Israel and what Jesus was doing in his messianic ministry in coming to renew and fill new wine where the old wine had failed. Now, John chapter 2, verses 13 through 22 serves as an illustration of that reality. What we see here is a contrast between the state of Jewish worship at the Old Covenant temple with what Christ was going to accomplish in raising up the New Covenant temple for the New Covenant people of God. So that's really the theme of this passage and what we're going to be looking at today and next week. Now, for today, we're going to be looking at uh, the first 17 or verses 13 through 17 under three main headings. Number one is the scene of this sign. And uh, by the way, I'm not going to give all three of them to you right now because I want the kids to pay attention throughout the rest of the sermon rather than just filling in the blank and then they don't pay attention anymore. So, so the first main point today is the scene of this sign. What's going on in the setting where Jesus points to this sign and cleanses the temple as proof of that sign? As John chapter 2 verses 13 through 14 make clear, <clears throat> this sign took place at Jerusalem in the temple and near the time of the Passover. Now in order to understand what's happening here and what's going on, we need to understand some things about the Passover celebration. Passover was one of three national feasts that God required his people to celebrate uh, before him annually. It included two elements. So celebrating Passover included two different things. The first part of it was the actual Passover sacrifice. And that's what we very often think of as the Passover. It's the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. But then there was a second part of the celebration of the Passover, which was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And that would go on for seven days after the sacrifice of the Passover. Now, according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 26 through 27, the Passover sacrifice was intended to be a reminder to Israel of the deliverance they experienced from his judgment 
on the night that he brought them out of Egypt. It says, when your children say to you, what does this rite mean? Talking about the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. What does this rite mean to you? Then you shall say to them, it is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And so right there you see the significance, what's being portrayed in the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. It's celebrating deliverance from the wrath of God that the Israelites experienced on the night when they came out of Egypt. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrates something slightly different. According to Exodus 12, verse 17, the Feast of Unleavened Bread celebrated Israel's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. The Lord says to them, you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. You read on further in Exodus 12, you find that bringing them out of the land of Egypt is talking about the Lord delivering them out of slavery in Egypt. So you have these two elements to the celebration of Passover. You have the celebration of being delivered from the wrath of God, and then you also have the celebration of being delivered from tyranny, the tyranny of the Egyptians. Both of these elements come together in the Passover celebration to celebrate the work of God in redeeming Israel to be a people for his own possession. That's what Passover was all about. Now, the law gave specific instructions about how the Passover was to be celebrated by the people of Israel. And I just want you to keep tracking with me, okay? You guys with me? Am I, are you, am I dull enough at the moment to put you to sleep, or are you awake and with me? If you're awake and with me, say an amen. Just, I need to know that you're awake. I, it's just my perception. I know. I can't see what's going on in your heart. But the blank stares sometimes are unbearable. <laughs> All right. All right. Now, the law gave specific instruction about how the Passover was to be celebrated by the people of Israel. Exodus 12, 18, for example, tells us when the Passover was to be celebrated. Here it's talking specifically in reference to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but it's, it says that on the night of the 14th of the first month, which is the month of Aviv, they would begin celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the same night when the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. Now what that is, that's the first month of the Jewish calendar, and the 14th would be the night in which the full moon appeared during that month. So that would be the full moon of our March and April, just so that you're, that's why we celebrate Easter at various times throughout the year because that full moon appears at different times according to our calendar. Just so you're aware of that. Deuteronomy 16 verse 2 goes on to tell the people of Israel where they were to celebrate the Passover feast. So not only when they were to celebrate it, but also where they were to celebrate it. Deuteronomy 16 verse 2 says that they were to celebrate the sacrifice of the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock and from the herd in the place the Lord chooses to establish his name. Now what's that talking about? Just say it out loud. What proves the place where God chooses to establish his name? What signifies that that is the place where God chose to establish it? Is that, is that a clear question? Probably not. It's where the temple is. Yeah, who said that? Thank you. Yeah, that's right. Same It's where he chose to have the tabernacle dwell or the place where he chose to have the temple built. That signified the place where the Lord would choose to establish his name. And then Exodus 12, 47 
tells us who was to celebrate the Passover. So you've got when, you've got where, now who. Who is supposed to celebrate the Passover? Verse 47 says, all the congregation of Israel was to celebrate the Passover. In fact, just following this verse, if you read at the end of Exodus 12, you find that any sojourner could come and celebrate the Passover with the people of Israel. He simply had to become part of the nation in order to do it. He had to be circumcised. So he had to renounce all of his old life, right? Think of Ruth here going with Naomi, renouncing her gods from back home and adopting Yahweh as her God. If a sojourner wanted to celebrate the Passover of the Lord, then he simply had to own, own Yahweh as his God and renounce faith in all other gods. So all the congregation of Israel was expected and commanded by the Lord to celebrate the feast of the, uh, the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, there were two exceptions to celebrating this feast during that first, first month time period. If you were on a long journey and you weren't able to celebrate the feast, you weren't able to be where the Lord's name dwelt at that time because you were far away, the Lord gave you a month extension. You could come the, uh, the next month and celebrate the Passover with everyone else who couldn't make the first one. Or if you were unclean, if you were ceremonially unclean and you could not enter into the congregation of the people of Israel, the Lord gave you an extension. You could come back the next month and celebrate it with everyone else who missed it. However, if as an Israelite, you chose not to celebrate the Passover, the Lord says your punishment would be being cut off from his covenant people. According to Numbers 9.13, if anyone missed the celebration of the Passover for any other reason than what the Lord allotted, then that person would be cut off from Israel. And the reason why the, the, the punishment is so strict, and understand what it means to be cut off from Israel, first of all. Israel is in covenant relationship with Yahweh. They are the only people in the world at this time where the true knowledge of Yahweh was made known. They were the only people in the entire world. They dwelt in the only place in the entire world where a sinner could approach God and have fellowship with him. To be cut off from the people of Israel was in essence to be cut off from the Lord himself. You cannot have a relationship. Here's a, here's a parentheses principle here. So we're going to call those from now on a parentheses principle. You cannot have fellowship with God if you do not have fellowship with his people. That is a principle from the Old Testament, and it carries on to the New. To be cut off from the people of Israel was to be cut off from the Lord himself. Another parenthesis here. That is the new covenant form of being cut off from the people of God is what? Excommunication. excommunication. That's right. That's why being excommunicated from a body of believers is so significant. Because that body of believers is pronouncing judgment on you and saying that you do not belong to the Lord. And if you don't have restored fellowship with them, you will not have restored fellowship with God. Now, the reason why that punishment was so severe was because of what the Passover signified. When the Israelites participated in this celebration year after year and generation after generation, they were not simply remembering the history of how God graciously dealt with the people of Israel. That was part of what they were doing, but they were not merely recounting the history of what God did with their forebears. 
with their ancestors. By participating in the celebration of the Passover, the worshiper was not only remembering the history of God's dealings with the people, but that worshiper was also taking hold of God's salvation himself and owning it by faith. By participating in this celebration, they were taking hold of God's salvation revealed to the people of Israel back then, and they were owning it by faith for themselves. In other words, they were consciously making that history their own history. They were attaching themselves to Yahweh. That's what was happening in the celebration of the Passover feast. And so to choose not to celebrate the feast was in essence to cut yourself off from that saving history of God. You don't get the significance of that. In essence, what you are doing and choosing not as a, as a Jew, as an Israelite, what you are doing and not celebrating the feast of the Passover is you are willfully and consciously renouncing the blessing of salvation that God gave the Israelites that night of the Exodus. You could only, as a Jew, you could only receive the benefit of that salvation the Lord gave the Israelites that night in Egypt. You could only receive that blessing yourself years later by participating in the celebration of the Passover by faith and owning that blessing for yourself. Which, by the way, the New Covenant parallel, baptism in the Lord's table. The same reality that's pictured there in the celebration of the Passover for the Israelite, it's mirrored in the celebration of baptism in the Lord's table. When a worshiper practices these ordinances in a true and a confessing faith, he or she is not only recognizing the truth of what God has done in Christ to secure spiritual salvation and deliverance for sinners, but that worshiper is in faith consciously taking hold of that reality themselves by using the means God ordained for them to have it. Baptism, the Lord's table. I wanted to go much, much more into that, but that's just... Side, another side, parenthetical application. So as a faithful Jew, with the Passover drawing near, we find here in John 2.13 that Jesus and his disciples go up to Jerusalem in order to celebrate and in order to worship God. But notice what Jesus finds in regard to the state of worship when he arrives at the temple. That's point number two, the state of worship. I want to notice something here that may be a little controversial. I don't shy away from that necessarily, but I don't want to be unhelpful either. I want you to notice, first of all, how John describes the Passover here in John chapter 2, verse 13. I think this is the first hint that we get at the state of the Jewish worship taking place at the temple. In John 2.13, he calls this celebration specifically the Passover of the Jews. The Passover of the Jews. And I think right here we find our first hint at the degradation of worship that was taking place here in Jerusalem. How is that? Well, some people say 
that the Apostle John describes the Passover as the Passover of the Jews simply because he is writing his gospel primarily to Gentiles. And the Gentiles would not have been as familiar with Jewish feasts, and so John is identifying which feast there was so that there was no, this was so that there was no confusion. It was the Passover of the Jews, not to be confused with some other feast from other people, I suppose. But that argument doesn't make sense to me. And I don't want to discredit it entirely, but just hear me out. I think that there's more going on here than just John describing to the Gentiles what the feast was that they were going up to celebrate. First of all, I don't know of any other people in the ancient world that celebrated a feast called the Passover. And so to specifically identify it as the Passover of the Jews in order to make sure that there's no confusion among the Gentile readers doesn't make sense to me. According to Acts chapter 15, verse 21, from ancient generations, the law of Moses had those who proclaimed him in every city. Now, I don't think that's literally every city in the entire globe, but I do think that that's every city within the known world at that time. That from ancient times, there were people who heralded the truth of Moses in their cities. What does that mean? That means that there was a Jewish presence in those cities. And with the Jewish presence in those cities, when they went to celebrate the Passover, guess what the people of that city would have known they were doing? They were celebrating the Passover. They would have known what the Passover of the Jews was. So there's really no need. This is redundant, is what I'm saying. If John is trying to explain to Gentiles what's going on at this feast, simply trying to do that by describing it as the Passover of the Jews. It seems to me that even here, the Apostle John is giving us a hint about the state of the spiritual worship in Israel at this time. I don't think that we should take lightly the fact that every time in the Old Testament this feast is described with this sentence construction, okay, not to get too complicated here, but every time it's described in a similar way, it is never, not even a single time ever called the Passover of the Jews. In fact, the only time it's ever described with this type of sentence structure is by calling it the Passover of the Lord. The Passover of Yahweh. For example, Exodus 12, 11, it's called the Lord's Passover. You can see the same thing in Leviticus 23, verse 5, and Numbers 28, verse 16 as examples. And the significance of that is, is simple. The primary focus, in other words, in celebrating the Passover was always intended to be Yahweh. It was Yahweh's Passover, and celebrating that Passover was always to be done unto Yahweh. It was not the Jews' Passover. It was the night when the Lord passed over His people. And it was always to be celebrated like that. For example, Exodus 12, 27. It is a Passover sacrifice that is to be offered to the Lord in its worship. But John doesn't call it the Passover of the Lord here in John 2, 13. He calls it the Passover of the Jews. And it seems to me that John is giving a subtle hint of the massive shift that had taken place in the Jewish celebration of the Passover. In other words, the Passover for the Jews had lost its true meaning. They held on to the right, they held on to the ritual, and they had even come to view it as a marker of national identity, but not primarily as an act of worship directed unto the Lord. 
It was no longer about seeking God's face through the celebration of the Passover. It was no longer about being personally thankful for what the Passover signified. Deliverance from the wrath of God. Deliverance from tyranny of oppression. It was no longer about that. It was about celebrating the ceremony for the ceremony's sake. It was about celebrating the ceremony not as an expression of wholehearted faith in God and and true love and zeal for Him, but simply doing the Passover because that's what's always been done. I'm Jewish. That's what we do. You know, beloved, before we start thinking more highly of ourselves, we who have walked with the Lord for any period of time know how easily and how quickly our worship of God can become just like this. A rite, a ritual, just something that we do. This is what identifies us as being in the church. We do this, we do that. Very quickly and very easily, our worship of God can become just as empty and misdirected as the religion of the Jews was during this time. When we lose all true heart in reading Scripture, when we lose true heart in prayer and in participating in corporate worship, or even just the joy and the delight and the vigor, the the, the encouragement that we get from walking in practical obedience and service to Christ throughout the moments of our day, when that becomes a chore and a ritual and just something that we do rather than an expression of faith-filled worship and love unto the Lord, it is absolutely detestable in His sight. You understand that? You're not gaining brownie points with God simply because you're a legalist. The only thing that makes our worship of God acceptable in His sight is the love that is behind it. It's faith working through love, is what Paul wrote in Ephesians 5. If you don't have love undergirding everything that you're seeking to do in the name of the Lord, it is not acceptable in His sight. How often we can become just like the church in Ephesus, right? Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, what does Jesus say was their primary problem? Just before this, He's praising them because they were opposing the false teachers and they were holding true to His Word and they had not corrupted it. And yet He gets to verse 4 and He indicts them. What does He say? You've lost your first love. See, they could do all the other stuff in the name of the Lord, and they could even do it according to the Word. They could be accurately preaching the gospel of Christ. They could be truly keeping their steps in line with what God had revealed in His Word. And yet, because they didn't have love behind it, it was detestable to Him. Jesus says, you've lost your first love. Verse 5, repent. And do the deeds you did at first. Otherwise, Jesus says, I'm coming to you. And I'm going to remove your lampstand. Jesus is serious about worship being upheld with right and true motives. And if it's not being done 
with the spirit of love and true faith, the Lord will shut us down before he allows us to continue. Haven't you read the book of Malachi? I wish someone would just shut the door. How dare you defile my house with these offerings? Would you bring your governor offerings like this? The Lord will shut us down if our worship is not directed towards him with right and true hearts. You know, just before we, before we leave that, boy, time just, time just keeps marching on. It waits for no man, not even preachers. I don't want you to hear what I just said and somehow skirt around it for yourself. If, if you are a true God-fearer, if you are one that Psalm 147.11 speaks about, that you fear the Lord and you hope in his steadfast love right there together, you walk in the fear of God and you walk in true hope in him, if you are one of those, then this passage ought to land on you with force. You ought to feel cut by it. There are ways in every single one of our lives where we are not walking in true love to God. And if you deny that, I'll take you to 1 John and call you a liar. You need to hear these warnings and you need to be in a state of perpetual godly repentance. You never lose your need of repenting of sin. And you never get to the point where you can stop resisting sin to the point of shedding your blood. This is a Christian life, guys. This is what it means to take up your cross daily and follow after Jesus. It means that you are constantly dying to yourself. And that doesn't end until you take your last breath in this world. It's this kind of loveless, apostate spirit of religiosity that Jesus finds at this celebration of Passover when he comes to the temple. Now, specifically in John 2.14, it says that he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. Now, finding these people selling animals or exchanging money was not the problem. In fact, all of these elements were vital in order for Jewish people to worship the Lord appropriately. The oxen and the sheep and the doves, they were all needed in order to sacrifice unto the Lord in the temple. And remember, most of these Jews didn't live in Jerusalem. These Jews who came to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem, they were coming from hundreds and even thousands of miles away. Now, as they made their way to Jerusalem, they weren't going to bring their own cattle and their own sheep from back home. You're not going to drive a big ox from the city of Rome to the city of Jerusalem, almost 1,500 miles away, right? Not only is that, just as far as cost is concerned, not only is that entirely unrealistic, but there's also great risk to the animal in doing something like that. What happens if that animal stumbles and breaks a leg? What do you get now out of that animal? It's no longer acceptable to be offered unto the Lord in worship. Best thing you can do is sell it at a discounted price and... Give it to somebody who's going to eat it. 
So not only was it impractical and expensive, but it would have been risky to drive animals that far. And so what people would do is they would sell their animals back home, and then they would bring the money with them to Jerusalem where they would purchase an acceptable replacement for that animal and offer it unto the Lord in worship. That's what these animals, that's what these sellers were doing here. They were providing a necessary service for people to worship the Lord. The same thing with the money changers. Their job was very important because there was only a certain kind of money that was acceptable before God for worship. And it had, to, it had to be a very pure form of currency. And so what these people would do, coming from all over the known world at that time with various forms of currency, most, most likely all of them were bringing with them Roman coinage. What these worshipers would have to do is come to these money changers and offer their money in exchange for what was called Tyrian coinage. Tyrian coinage was a very high level, had a very high level of pure purity to it. So it was like 99% pure silver is what, was, what these coins were made out of. And that was the only kind of coin that was acceptable for worship in the Lord. You know the, the two drachma tax where they had to pay a temple, ta- all the males of Israel had to pay a temple tax every year. Remember the story about Jesus and Peter? Uh, he tells Peter, go cast a hook in the sea and you'll pull out a fish and you'll find a coin in its mouth. You can use that to pay our tax. Right? It's not, it's, the amazing part about that is not simply that Peter just happened to pull a fish out of, the, out of the sea that had a coin in its mouth. It's that the kind of coin that was in its mouth was also acceptable for worship at the temple. I mean, this is part of the glory of what Jesus was doing. In that, you know, that's just a side, side rabbit trail there. But point being, there was only a certain kind of money that was used in order, or that could be used in order to worship the Lord according to his will. So the people selling and exchanging money in this scene were actually offering a very important and practical service to those who were coming to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. So what then was the problem? The people needed all of these things in order to worship God. So what is Jesus getting so angry about? Well, there are different thoughts about this. There are many who believe that Jesus was mostly upset because of the greed that he saw among the religious leaders while he came to the, when he came to the temple. And we see this all over the place in the other gospel accounts. We're going to see this more in the gospel of John. Their greed fueled their hypocrisy. So, for example, in Luke chapter 20, verses 46 through 47, we find the scribes who were among the religious leaders of that day. We find the scribes had an appearance of godliness on the outside, but in reality, their religion was all about the praise of men. And then it says in verse 47 that they even used their religion to prey upon the needy and vulnerable people, such as the widows. Now, someone who is willing to prey upon widows... Is it too hard to imagine the same kind of hypocrisy being present in a situation like we find in John chapter 2? No, it's not. It's not too far-fetched. Turning worship of God into an opportunity for their greed? We see that today, don't we? I just listened to a clip from a pastor that was calling his congregation, rebuking his congregation for not loving God enough because they hadn't purchased for him a $50,000 watch. He started saying... Something like, you know, am I not worth your Starbucks money? Am I not, am I not worth your, your uh, Red Lobster money? And, and stuff like that. I mean, we see fleecing the flock all over the place, right? So not hard to imagine that taking place here. Maybe charging more for the animals than what was necessary or 
maybe granting the more privileged positions to sellers and money changers who are willing to give the religious leadership a higher cut of the profits? In light of the fact that this is exactly why Jesus rebukes and cleanses the temple the second time in Matthew 21, 13, it's likely that their greed was probably pretty evident here in John 2. And no doubt Jesus saw that. But here in John 2.14, the charge that is laid against these religious leaders is not robbery, and it's not extortion, and it's not greed. The charge that is laid against them is that they were selling and changing money within the temple. John 2.16, Jesus' problem with the whole scene is that they were making his father's house a place of business. Literally, they were making his father's house a marketplace. Definitely manifesting a lack of reverence, yes, but more than that, they were encouraging an atmosphere in the temple that is directly contrary to the spirit of worship and offensive to the heart of God. Now, it's most probable that this whole scene took place in the part of the temple that's known as the court of the Gentiles. I've got a picture up here. I even brought my pointer for your sake. Yeah, yeah. Ooh. Okay, so here's, here's the temple complex, a representation of the temple complex under Herod. Right? This is the temple that was being built at this time. It was 46 years under construction at the time that Jesus and this whole scene is taking place in John 2. And it, the, the actual, the temple construction is going to continue on until AD 63, seven years before it's just going to be destroyed by the Romans. So you're talking about a long time of building this temple up. But anyway, so here you've got the entrance over there. This is uh, the gate beautiful right there. You've got the the. Uh, holy place and the most holy place right there, and this is where all the sacrificing and whatnot would take place from the priest. Out here and back here, you have what's called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles was the only place in the entire temple complex where Gentiles were allowed to come, uh, where Gentiles were allowed to be. So, where am I? Here we are. So this is the outermost uh, court of the temple complex and the only place where the Gentiles were allowed to go. Now, there could be a number of reasons why the Jewish people chose to set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. Maybe it was just because of their disdain for Gentiles and they didn't want Gentiles to be there. That's very possible in light of what we see in the New Testament. Maybe this area, you can see how it's kind of, it's kind of gated in, it's, it's fenced in. Maybe this just provided a, a good enclosed area to keep the animals secure. Uh, this location would have been perfect for making sure that worship, as it was happening within the, the inner parts of the temple, wasn't being disrupted. The Jews actually had to pass right through these, these, uh, the courtyard of the Gentiles in order to get to the main area of worship. So it would make sense for them to have the money changers set right there and the animals right there so that as the, the Jewish people came into the temple, they just stopped here and changed out their money and then they stopped there and they purchased an animal and then they just took it right up to the main gate and met a priest who offered it for them. So very practical. It makes sense. It would keep the streets outside of the temple complex from being cluttered, Right? All these people walking in, ox and sheep and all that stuff. So it would seem like a very practical and convenient way to, to handle the transactions that would need to take place in order for worship to happen. But here's the point. Wake up. Here's the point. 
the practicality and the convenience of something does not determine its acceptability. Just because something makes worship of the people of God more convenient and more practically attained does not mean that it is acceptable in the eyes of God. This is part of the problem I have with things like CCL licensing. Not that I believe the artist should not be paid, but whenever you're charging to sing songs based upon how many people are gathering in your worship service, that just seems a little off to me. The convenience of something and the practicality of it is not determined by, or does not determine its acceptability. The whole system may have been very convenient for the Jews, but it was an absolute violation of God's revealed will for how he should be approached and how his temple should be used in worship. For example, Isaiah 56 verses 6 through 7 makes clear that even the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord, who joined themselves to him to minister to him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants and to keep from profaning his Sabbaths, even those foreigners, the Lord says, will be welcomed in my house. Even those, God says, I will bring them into my holy mountain and I will make them joyful in my house of prayer. And their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. This is exactly what the Jews were disrupting in their attempts to worship the Lord. They were going directly contrary to the revealed will of God. All in the name of making their worship easier. You know, it's kind of hard to pray and worship unto the Lord when the bleeding of sheep and the noise of business tramples out the holy hush that ought to attend our approach to God. You remember Habakkuk 2.20? The Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth what? Keep silent. Let all the earth keep silent. Do you know what it's like to approach God with a sense of His holiness that grips you so deeply that you can't speak a word? This is why in the building of the temple, when Solomon was building the temple, this is why they would not permit the sound of a hammer or a tool to be heard within the sanctuary of the temple. Because they remembered who they were building that temple for and they knew that he was very near and demanded reverence. See, the real issue here in John 2 that Jesus is so upset about is that the Jewish people had lost proper reverence for God in their worship. In John 2, their worship had become so mechanical and ritualistic in what they were doing that they had lost sight of the one to whom and for whom and before whom they were doing it. I wonder how often that's us. We lose sight of what we are doing when we gather here to worship the Lord with His people. You know, the most inciting part about all of this is not merely that they were losing, they had lost their reverence for the Lord in their worship. The most inciting part about it is that they didn't even realize what they were doing. They didn't even have a conception that their worship was so offensive in the eyes of God. 
And we see that because of the way that these Jews contest Jesus in just a few verses. They don't receive what he says. In fact, they challenge what he says. Who are you to tell us such a thing? They were utterly offensive to God in their worship, and they didn't even know it. So, how does Jesus respond to that? Notice Jesus' response in John 2, 15 to 16. Boy, if this is not one of the most powerful and counter-cultural depictions of Jesus that we find in the scriptures, I don't know what is. It says, in response to what Jesus saw in this worship in the temple, he made a whip of cords and drove them all out of the temple with sheep and the oxen. Now, I want you to notice something there. It says, with sheep and oxen, which means there was another element to that party that was being driven out of the temple. Who was that? The sellers. Jesus is not just whipping animals. He's whipping people. And he's getting them out of the temple. He made a a whip of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. What is Jesus doing here? Well, the simple answer is that Jesus is fulfilling his calling in what he's doing here. Remember the words of Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 4? The Lord prophesied about the coming Messiah, and it said, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. He won't be expected, he will appear out of nowhere. And he will be like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi. And he will refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. This was going to be the main objective of the Messiah for his people. He was going to come and cleanse them so that they could offer right worship to God. Is that not what Jesus is doing here in the temple? It says, then, after that work, verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. What's going to bring that about? The purifying, refining fires of the Messiah coming among them. In John 2, Jesus doesn't just sit by and watch this desecration of his father's house or of his father's glory. He doesn't just sit by and let it continue. He steps in to put an end to their false worship and to purify them so that their worship would be made acceptable in the eyes of God. Now, let's not ignore the fact or downplay the extreme measures that Jesus took to do this. It says in John 2.15, like I said, Jesus drove all of them out of the temple with a whip. And what you need to understand about that is that this was very much premeditated. Jesus looked around at the temple and what was going on? He found some rope and he sat down watching all of of what was happening and began braiding that rope into a multi-corded whip. 
That took time. And then he commenced to use that whip to drive them all out of the temple. He took the bags of other people's money and he poured all of it out on the floor, mixing them all together. I hope they had good records of what they had sold. He grabbed tables with his own hands and flipped them around and threw them around among the people. I remember one time when I was a kid, I made my dad so angry. I hope this doesn't end. I hope, I hope when he watches this, if he does, he doesn't feel too bad that I'm sharing this with you. There was one time when I made my dad so angry that the only thing he could do was grab the table and throw it into the wall. And it scared the it scared the boogers out of me. I mean, it was, it was extreme. That's Jesus right here. You hear that story about my dad and you think, oh, how violent. Oh, how angry. Wow. That's Jesus, guys. That's what Jesus did here. Do you understand that? Imagine someone coming in this place and taking this pulpit and throwing it. You know what we would do in our day? We would look at Jesus and we would say, whoa, whoa, whoa. wait a second, Jesus. What are you doing? What's all this about? It's not very nice. What you're doing, you're whipping people. Jesus, that's not nice. That doesn't seem very peaceable or meek. Jesus, I, I know your intentions are good, but don't, you don't think you seem just maybe a little off edge, out of kilter here? I mean, I'm pretty sure that you have good intentions, but I think you're scaring these people off. I don't think you're winning any of these people to your cause, Jesus. And in fact, I, I think you probably need to go apologize to them for what you did. See, if it were up to you and me to cleanse the temple and put an end to the defilement of worship that was happening in that place, guess what? It would never have been done. Here, Jesus, this anti-stereotypical, happy-go-lucky, long-haired, hippie Jesus that everybody wants to talk about holding up a peace sign, that's not Jesus here. Verse 17, as verse 17 says, this is Jesus consumed with zeal for his Father. Consumed with the holy jealousy to vindicate his father's holiness and glory over against the abuses of the presumptuous worshipers that were standing in his presence. Like Moses, grinding up the golden calf, mixing it with water, and forcing Israel to drink it. Like Phineas, taking up a spear and running the spiritual adulterer through with his mistress. So Jesus stands here and rises up with zeal for the glory of his Father and drives all the nonsense out of the temple. Why did he do this? Well, it's like what the Holy Spirit says of Christ in Isaiah 59, 14 through 17. 
Such a perfect depiction of what's happening here in John 2. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the streets and uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking and he who turns aside from evil makes himself a prey. Feels like we're coming close to that in our own day. Now the Lord saw and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and he was astonished that there was no one to intercede. And then it says, so his own arm brought salvation to him, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head, and he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as with a mantle. What is Jesus doing here in John 2? He's fulfilling that passage right there. He's clothing himself with zeal, and he single-handedly is putting an end to this idolatrous worship taking place in the name of his Father. So why did Jesus do that? Well, he did that not because he did not love these people, but because he loved the glory of his Father more and desired for his Father to be honored more than he desired the good opinions of men. You know, we would would have a real problem if Jesus came into our gathering here and did something like this. And I think that that's part of our problem. I'm coming to the end, all right? So put up with me for just a little longer. Part of our problem is if it were up to us To cleanse the temple like this, it would never happen. Let me shift the analogy there, or the context in which we're speaking about that. If it's up to you and me to disrupt our false worship in our own lives, it's never going to happen. You know why? Because we're too comfortable. We're too comfortable. And in fact, operating in zeal like that may be seen as too disruptive, maybe too extreme, maybe it's too loud. I mean, can you imagine Jesus whispering as he said, please, would you guys please, would you stop, please, please, I'm asking, would you please stop making my father's house a place of business? I mean, I don't want to be too offensive. But would you please consider doing that? No, I don't think that's how Jesus approached them. And I think the difference between us and Jesus is that Jesus was filled with zeal for his Father's holy name, and you and I are not. Zeal for his father's house, zeal for his father's glory and his name and his dwelling place consumed Jesus, but it does not consume us. You know, our swords that we claim to have and the sword of God's word that we claim to wield, those swords get blunted by our concern for appearances and for acceptance of men. The scalpel that the Spirit of God has put into our hands to do spiritual surgery 
in the lives of those around us, that scalpel gets replaced with butter knives that don't even break the surface of the sinner's conscience. We're too concerned about being accepted by the world to do any good for the kingdom of heaven in the world. We need to be consumed with zeal for the Father's house as Jesus was. Now, as we close, one more thing let me point out. There's also something very important for us to understand about why Jesus did this. Something added to his zeal for his Father's house. It's not merely Christ's zeal for his Father that made him so violent, if you will, so forceful. That's a better word. So forceful in the way he treated these people. It was also his zealous love for his people that drove him to do this. It was his fierce desire to sanctify and protect the worship of his people that drove him to do this. That was the force behind the whip, and that was the burning zeal in his rebuke. It was his love for sinners, not his hatred for them. This act was not simply Jesus being wrathful towards his people or trying to cut them off in anger. This was Jesus seeking to correct his people so that they would not be cut off. Now let me apply that to you. If you are never ever cut or struck by the word of Christ, if you, are never, if you never feel like Christ is wielding the whip against you spiritually, then he has left you to yourself and you do not belong to him. You think he cares about the physical temple more than he cares about the spiritual temple he's building? Guys, it is a good thing. It is a good thing when our consciences are pricked by the Spirit of God and when the Word comes upon us with a heavy hand. It is a good thing when you and I are broken over with godly sorrow over our sin and we are driven out of our pleasure in sin and driven to seek refuge in Jesus. If you are never compelled by the Spirit to run to Christ and to run away from your sin, then the Spirit of God is not working in you. James chapter 4, verse 5, it says that he jealously yearns over the Spirit that he has made to dwell within us. You know what that means? If he has made his Spirit to dwell in you, he will not abandon you. He will correct you. He will rebuke you. He will bring you to a greater expression of faithfulness to Him. He will also forgive you of your sins. But He will not leave you in your sins because of His zeal for you. His zeal to make you a holy temple for His Spirit. He zealously yearns for the Spirit He's made to dwell in you. Deuteronomy 5.9, among the Ten Commandments, it says that God is a jealous God over His people and He will have all of their worship. And Jesus says in Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. You know, to be left without discipline, what does it say in Hebrews 12? You're not a legitimate child. You're not a legitimate child. If you can run headlong into sin and never be corrected or stopped by the Lord, then you are not his child. And you need to repent, and you need to run to Christ until he makes you his child.
My friend, being reproved by the Lord is a mark of his love for you. And if you never experienced that loving rebuke and you never experienced the Spirit of God bringing you to deep contrition and sorrow over the ways that you've sinned against Him, then according to the Word of Christ, He does not love you with that zealous love that made Him drive out these people from the temple. But if you are rebuked by Him, and if you do feel that godly sorrow, and you experience in your walk with the Lord that welling up of godly sorrow and shame over what you have done against the Lord, then my friend, that only happens in the lives of those who belong to Jesus. Oh, that should be so encouraging for you as a believer. When God rebukes you of your sin, that should encourage you of His great and deep love for you. So often... It's our knowledge of our sin that makes us doubt his love. It's feeling how much of a sinner we are that makes us question whether the Lord will truly have us. Where in reality, the only reason we see our sin the way we do is because God is awakening our eyes to see it. And that is a mark of his great love for us. So we see Jesus coming into the temple. We see Jesus finding corrupted worship and cleansing it out of zeal for his father. And as those who belong to his new covenant temple, we will see the same work of Christ taking place in our lives as well. I pray as you go forward in the week ahead that you will find in all of Christ's dealings with you markers of his love and faithfulness to cleanse you and make you his temple. We're going to return to this passage next week to talk about the new covenant temple. Would you pray with me as we end? Father, we love you. We love your word. We love what you've done in your son, Lord. And we are so thankful for the faithfulness that you exemplify, that you show. When you bring correction into our lives and you drive out idolatrous worship from our hearts. Lord, we want to be a holy people and we want to be sanctified by your grace. Would you please do that in us today? Fill us with your spirit, Lord. Let us have no other considerations in this place right now other than coming before you after hearing your word, coming before you with a song of response and lifting our hearts as truly and as purely and as honestly as we can lifting our hearts to you and praising you with our lips. God, would you fill us with your spirit and help us unto that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Hear the benediction from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace, who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, our Lord Jesus, may he equip you in every good thing to do his will, by doing in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And may you go in the peace and the glory of the name of the Lord Jesus.